beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has done it. What has he done? On the first day of the week, the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. So what? Other people rose from the dead in history. Why is his resurrection different or more significant? Well, it's different and more significant in every way. Jesus laid down his life. And Jesus sovereignly takes up his own life again. He is declared, says the scripture, to be the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. In the resurrection of Jesus, we do not have the mere reuniting of a soul and body that have been torn apart. Something far greater has happened here. Christ, by his death and by his resurrection, has reconciled a fallen humanity with a holy God. He has wrestled all the powers of darkness and the ancient serpent himself, and he has overcome, triumphing over them in the cross, dying. He has death defeated. He has undone the fall. Death came through the first Adam. And so the resurrection from the dead comes through Christ, the last Adam. And so this is not just any resurrection here, but this is the coming into being of a new world, a new creation, a new humanity. And you see in the scenes painted for us in the gospel, in the historical accounts of the gospels, you see the echoes of the garden, of Eden at the beginning. On resurrection morning, you see a garden, not a garden which is like Eden, full of all kinds of fruit and and life, but a, a garden in a rocky and dry place, and you see a tree, not a tree of life like there in Eden, but a dead tree upon, some, upon which someone was killed. You have a garden, and you have a tree, and you have a man coming out of the earth. A new creation a new humanity, but nothing like the first Adam. Nothing like our first father Adam in his fall and in his death. Jesus gets out of the grave on resurrection morning. Just like you woke up this morning and got out of bed. Death has no power over him. The grave cannot hold him. Why not? Because sin has been paid for. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that changes everything. That changes curse into blessing, night into day. This is the fruit of all his suffering and 
pain, his suffering, his death. They were not senseless, random events. But this was always the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that Christ's death would mean life for the world. That his chastisement would bring us peace and that with his wounds we would be healed. Now the psalmist in Psalm 22, he knows the gospel. He knows that the darkness of night will give way to the light of day. He knows the theology of the cross that God brings life out of death. And even though he only knows it vaguely in Old Testament terms, yet he knows that Resurrection Sunday must follow Crucifixion Friday. And that's why this psalm, which begins with such agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It begins with such agony, but it ends with such joy. And that switch occurs in verse 22, which is the first verse of our text this morning. Now, we know that the first verse of the psalm comes out of the mouth of our Savior when he's on the cross. And likewise, the Holy Spirit puts into the mouth of our Savior the first words of our text this morning. If you have your Bible handy, you look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why, and now pay attention, this is our This is verse 22 of our text. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And there in Hebrews chapter 2, talking about the death of our Savior, the Holy Spirit puts on his lips as well the second part of the psalm, speaking about his victory. And so the scripture makes clear that this whole psalm was about Jesus, also the second part. Now, it's not as clear as the first part. You remember when we went on Good Friday through the first part of the psalm, it was as if the psalmist was there at Golgotha. It looked like the way he writes about it seems as though he was there a thousand years in the future. It was so clear the things he says that are said and done upon the, uh, res- uh, the, the crucifixion of our Lord. Now, when you get to the second part, that, that clarity is no longer here. We don't have as clear prophecies of the resurrection in the second part as we have of the crucifixion in the first part. And that's the character of Old Testament prophecy. It, it looks forward through the mists of time, and you see the the future uh, great redemptive events of God as mountains in the distance, and you can't always tell which one's behind which one, and you can't see them in all of their details. But we can, 
because we stand on the mountaintops of God's revelation. In Christ, we see the second part of the psalm from the perspective of Christ's finished work, and we see with glorious clarity what the psalmist sees from a great distance. Now, in the first instance, the psalm speaks about David, that he was hard-pressed, and that he cried out to the Lord, and that God heard his cry. But it's more than just a psalm about a personal salvation. Look at the verses uh, 26 and and 27, uh, 25 as well. The psalmist glorifies God for his salvation in terms of the church, the congregation, the people of God, the descendants of Jacob. And he also praises God for salvation in cosmic terms. To the ends of the earth, he speaks of the kingship of God over the nations. So let's have a look more closely at the text. We'll start in verse 22. If you have your Bible open, it will help you to follow the sermon better. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And this is so important, brothers, this is a scriptural principle which we have to hold on to. There is no such thing as me and my Jesus, which is the, the type of pseudo-Christianity you sometimes hear pushed nowadays. Me and my Jesus, that is not a thing in the scriptures. Salvation is not, never has been, never will be all about me. When we fell in Adam, the relationship with God was broken, and that in turn tore apart every human relationship. And so when Jesus fixes things, when Jesus restores communion with God, then the consequence, the inevitable consequence, is that human relationships are healed by the power of his blood. And the Apostle John tells us, you can't love God and hate your brother. And so we worship the risen Christ together. We praise the risen Christ together. We lift up his name together. I will tell of your name to my brothers, says the psalm. And, and who were the first brothers that Jesus told about the great work of God in raising his son from the dead? Who were those first brothers? Well, were they not the women? Were they not the sisters? They were the first ones to hear. Our mother Eve was the first to sin, and our sisters were the first to hear the gospel and to see the gospel of the resurrection. And in the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus says to them, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. What is he saying? He's saying the relationship has been healed. My Father, your Father. My God, your God. United to the Father. We're united together. Christ is risen. God is our Father. Brothers all are we. Let us love one another. Now, who are these brothers of whom he speaks? Well, look at verse 23. Those who fear the Lord. The people of God. 
those united to Christ by true faith, they are the new, the redeemed, the restored human race. When Jesus died, we died to sin. When Jesus rose, we rose with him to a new life. The God of Jesus is our God. The Father of Jesus is our Father. The inheritance of Jesus is our inheritance, an eternal, glorious kingdom of eternal life and light. Now, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Well, look at verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. You remember when, Egypt was in, when, when Israel was in Egypt and, and they were crying out in their suffering, and the Lord said, I have heard the cries of my people. And when God hears the cries of his people, he comes and he saves them. What we have here is the, the cosmic outworking of that principle, not just God saving us from some country that's enslaving us, but God saving us from the powers of hell. God heard the cries of his people, and he heard them through Jesus. Because Jesus cried out for us. You know, sometimes we're so stuck in our sins and so stultified by our sins and so oppressed by our sins that we don't even think to cry out anymore. But Jesus cries out for us. And he was heard because of his godly fear. How was he heard? Well, you remember what Jesus' prayer was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was sweating drops of blood. You remember what his prayer was. It is the prayer that is always answered. Your will be done. Jesus learned obedience. Jesus was obedient unto death. This is the theology of the cross, counterintuitive for sinners. But it undid the fall. Jesus obeyed no matter what. God's word, God's will is good, even if it crushes me, even if it kills me. I will not let go of this, that God is good, that God's will is good, that God's word is true. I will not let go of that. And Jesus didn't. And he was heard. And God raised him from the dead. God brought life through death. And when it comes to Christ, God did not despise or disdain the suffering of his afflicted one. He worked salvation, not from death, but through death. And brother and sister, you know, our lives are little pictures, little reflections of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you may be facing not the cross and not all kinds of torture like Jesus did, but you may be facing, we may be facing hard things, painful things, crushing afflictions, and we look at it and we say, Lord, what are you doing? Why? Why does life have to hurt so much? I'm afraid of what's ahead of me. I don't know how to deal with it. And then God points us to Christ. He says, my child, you've got to trust me. That I work salvation not from affliction, not from suffering. That's not what I do. 
That's what the cheap, fake gods that are spoken about on TV do. They give you health and wealth and glory and freedom from every suffering on this earth. They make you rich and happy, they say. That's not the way God works. He works salvation not from affliction, but through affliction. That is the guarantee of the gospel. And we see it pictured before our eyes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 25, what is the response to God's great work of salvation? From you comes my praise in the great congregation. You see that again? This is not a personal thing between me and Jesus, between me and God. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. No child of God can worship and can live in Christ by him, by herself. Does it work? Together we worship. And then he moves on to speak of a great feast which is celebrating the sacrifice. Look at verse 25. He speaks of fulfilling my vows. And this is, this is temple language. The believer would make vows. The, the, the believer would bring a peace offering. And then the believer would actually eat a part of the sacrifice as a fellowship meal in God's presence because the offering had been made. The sacrifice had been done. The blood had been poured out. And it had testified to the forgiveness of sins that there is peace between the sinner and a holy God. And then there was celebration. You would sit down together with your brothers and sisters and you would eat and drink and rejoice in the presence of God. And everyone was supposed to participate. The Levites who didn't have their own, their own um, uh, tribal lands and so they were helped out to celebrate by the people. The poor who didn't have their own resources, they were not left out. They were invited to participate in the joy. A sacrifice and a meal of rejoicing. Pictured in the, the Passover, pictured in the Lord's Supper. Sin is dealt with. Everything's okay between God and us sinners. That is what the psalmist describes, the poor will eat and be satisfied. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. This is a glorious fulfillment of that peace offering and the, the fellowship meal that we see pictured in the Lord's Supper. The Lamb of God sacrificed for our sins. We sit down at the table. We have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with each other. We eat and drink the flesh and the blood of Jesus, who is our Passover Lamb, having been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. And that's something to celebrate. And this fellowship meal occurs in the context of eternal life. Do you see that then, verse 26 at the end? May your hearts live forever. That's what we celebrate at every Lord's Supper, not just that the blood of Christ has washed away our sins and reconciled us to God, not just that the sacrifice has been made and the, the debt has been paid, but we celebrate more that death is gone and that life is in its place, that Jesus came that we might have life and have it in abundance, that the Lamb of God died so that we might 
live. That's what Jesus says. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What does the Scripture say? As in Adam all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The first Adam brought death. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so we see in the verses 27 and 28, a, a restored fellowship and restored life is not just for us. It's not just for our little group. It's not just for us to close the doors and lower the blinds and say, well, isn't this a wonderful treasure that we can just kind of bury here and keep for ourselves? That's not the way it works. Look at verse 27. Look at verse 28. All the ends of the earth, all the families of the nations, the whole world needs to know that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that everything that Adam lost is restored in Christ. That's what the resurrection means, brothers and sisters. It means that man is restored to his rightful place, ruling with God over the creation. It turns everything the right side up again. You remember how the fall worked. But the first Adam, he, he grasped for glory. And he fell into the dust of death. And the last Adam did the opposite. He undid the fall. He was obedient unto death. And he was raised and exalted and given the name which is above every name. And we read that, didn't we? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we see in Jesus that the restoration, when God fixes things, when he restores things, he makes it even better. The restoration is more glorious than the creation because in creation, God was in heaven. We were here on earth. God would come visit and walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. But heaven was up there and man was here on earth as the vice regent of God. But in the restoration, when God fixes things in Christ, he places a man on the throne of heaven. There is a man right now sitting on the throne of God. And we, says the Scriptures, we are reigning with Christ already now. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ and will reign over the universe with him. This is far bigger, far greater, far more glorious than what was already great and glorious in the creation. And this new reality of a new mankind, forgiven, restored, regenerated in Christ. This new reality needs to go forth into all the world and take hold of every place and every time. Every knee must bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not something which just happens to be what we think. And then we meet other people, we say, well, that's nice, that's your religion, that's what you think. That's not how it works. The Bible doesn't say that everybody gets to make their own reality. There is one reality, and that is seen in the risen and ruling Lord Jesus Christ. 
every knee will bow, either now or at the last day. Every tongue will confess, either now or at the last day, that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now in verse 29, we see the psalmist saying this, that, that everyone, all the prosperous of the earth, all who go down to the dust, the rich and the poor, the humble and the powerful, the rich will exult in their humiliation, the poor in their exaltation, but everyone will find in Christ, will find in communion with Christ, will find in union with Christ their hope, their joy, and their life. This is the supper, the feast of the Lamb, which is better than any food which can be imagined, a banquet more wonderful than all the riches of the world could possibly purchase for us. If you have your Bible handy, look at Isaiah chapter 25, and I'm going to look at a few verses there, 25, 6, and 8, and 9. The, the prophet is prophesying of this future banquet. Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Verse 8, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Everyone is called to this celebration. Everyone is called to bow the knee, to confess with the tongue, to worship, to rejoice, to praise the Lord together. All nations, all peoples, all types of people, all classes of people, and also, look at verse 30, posterity. Also our children. Also our grandchildren and the coming generations throughout history, throughout the generations, the story needs to be told. And we need to love to tell it. The story of what God has done in Jesus Christ our Lord. The greatest gift that we give to our children and grandchildren is that we tell them about Jesus. Jesus who died for sinners. Jesus who was raised for our justification. And the greatest desire, children, the greatest desire that your mom and dad, that your grandparents have for you, if they are believers, is that you would love the Lord Jesus, that you would know the Lord Jesus, that you would worship the Lord Jesus now and forever. That gospel news never gets old. It never gets stale. You know, the Old Testament people of God were supposed to teach the facts of salvation history to their children every day when they sat in their house, when they walked by the way, when they lay down, and when they rose. And so we people of God, at every moment, in every way, in every place, 
the church is called to love to tell the story of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Now look there at verse 30. Do you see Jesus there in verse 30? It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. And it's not in all capital letters, is it? You see, in all capital letters, it would be Yahweh, the covenant name of God in Hebrew, but it's not in capital letters. And when it's not, then the word is Adonai, which in Hebrew is Kidios, which in English is Lord. And it's the word, the name, the title given to the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming generation shall be told of the Lord Jesus. And every Sunday, we do that. Every Sunday is the day of the resurrection. Every Sunday we celebrate and proclaim Christ our life. Every Lord's Supper we eat and are satisfied. We eat and worship. We eat and are assured that he has done it. He has paid for sin. He has taken away our guilt. He has reconciled us to God. He has made peace by the blood of his cross. He has destroyed the power of death. He has reconciled heaven with earth. And so what are we supposed to do? Well, look at verse 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. The whole world has to know if you know this greatest news that has ever been told, how can you keep it to yourself? Can you imagine at the great judgment day standing next to your colleague at work and your colleague sees Jesus come to judge the living and the dead? And your colleague turns to you and says, you knew about this the whole time? Why were you talking to me about hockey? Why didn't you tell me? And now it's too late. Brothers and sisters, we have an imperative. We have to tell someone. When you've got good news, you want to share it. You can't keep it to yourself. We've got to tell somebody. We've got to tell everybody. We've got to tell all the nations. We've got to proclaim it to St. Albert, to Alberta, to Canada, around the world, to the rich and to the poor. We've got to proclaim it to the adults and to the children. We've got to proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. And if we understand 1% of what he has done, we can't stay quiet. We can't keep it to ourselves. We must proclaim it, that he has done it. Now, what has he done? Well, he has dealt with sin. He has dealt with death. He has undone the fall. He has brought us back into fellowship with God. How do we know that he has done it? How can we be sure that it's true? We look at the empty tomb. And the empty tomb proclaims he has done it. Do you know what the empty tomb means? Well, Peter, when he preaches his Pentecost sermon, he says, death could not hold him. Why couldn't death hold him? Because death only gets to hold on to sinners. 
the wages of sin is death. And death only has the right to grasp sinners. No human being has ever gone to the grave and then come out again to live forever. No one but Jesus, because he has done it. Oh, yes, he has. And what does Paul say about this? He was raised for our justification. He is living, walking proof that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If Jesus hadn't done it, if Jesus had paid for some, for most, for almost all of your sins, but if there was some sin left over that he hadn't washed away, that he hadn't paid for, if just one of your sins, or one of my sins, was still unpaid for, then Jesus would still be dead and buried. But he took all of our sins to the cross. And your sins killed him. But when he came out of that tomb on Easter morning, your sins were gone. And God declared by the open tomb, he declared to you and to the world that you are forgiven, that you are free, that you are righteous because he has done it. Brothers and sisters, we need to hold on to this gospel. The devil comes to us and he pokes us. He rubs our sins in our faces. He grabs us and rubs our noses in our guilt and our shame. And there are so many things to, be, to feel guilty about, to feel ashamed of in our past and in our present. And the devil loves to remind us of that. And our old nature joins in. Our old nature grieves us. And we wonder sometimes, am I really good enough to be a child of God? Then the gospel comes and says, look to Jesus, for he has done it. He is risen. He lives. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amen.